never to do this. Welcome to bonus features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's a portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining us this week is Robert Harmon. Robert is the director of The Hitcher, the 10th entry into the Secret Handshake collection and arguably one of the greatest horror movies of all time. During this interview, we talked to him about everything from working with Rucker Hauer to casting Charles Napier in his first uh, short film, China Lake, to making a spiritual sequel in Highwaymen with Jim Caviezel. It's a great little chat and delves really into the nuts and bolts of what was a, a very tough production, but ended up generating a, an absolute classic. So enough from me. Here's Robert Harmon on The Hitcher. I see you. I see you're fine. And the, are you in like a, an office right there? I see I'm in the, my home office. I'm in my home office, which is, believe it or not, completely subterranean. Okay. Yeah. Con- okay. Concrete walls. This is like I call it. The, the whole building is called the bunker. Yeah, that, I was literally about to say it has a real bunker feel. <laughs> it's very bunker. It, it's very bunkerish. So nice Sorry. meeting you. What? Thank you. Thank you for your interest in my old movie. Yeah. No problem. Um, it's one of those movies that I think when we rewatched it a couple weeks ago for our main episode of the podcast, I was trying to think and was even talking to the other uh, co-hosts about, I think I've watched it on every format at this point, like from cable to VHS to (laughs) DVD to 35 millimeter to now Blu-ray. I understand exactly what you're saying because I have been, um, since 1968, when I first saw it, I've been obsessed with 2001. Okay. For me, the world's greatest movie, bar none, not even close. There's nothing ever been like that. And I used to say, I've seen it hundreds of times, everything from Cinerama at the Ziegfeld in New York when it opened to a 16 millimeter projection on a bed sheet in my college dorm room. Yeah. <laughs> I know this wide range of... Uh, of uh, projection and display technologies uh, is, is endless the way you can watch things. So not to jump into the interview portion too quickly, but I did kind of want to go back as you're, you're bringing up 1968 and uh, how far kind of your career stretches back because you, you began as a, a set photographer, correct? Well, in the movie business, I began that way. I was a photo- I started as a photographer at a very early age, made a living at that. Still a photographer. Nothing, yeah. to do with, nothing to do with movies. I had all kinds of different specialties over the years. Um, but I always really wanted to be a, a director. It was something that just interested me a lot. I've always been crazy about movies. Um, my little joke is I'm sure that I wanted to be a director before I knew what it actually was. Sure. And had I known, of course, I might have thought twice about it, but... Uh, so I was a photographer, and uh, I, I 
in, in order to get going with what I felt I wanted to do. Many, many years have gone by as a, as a photographer. When I moved to California, moved to Los Angeles from where I was at the time, which was Boston. And the only skill I had to sell was photography. It's all I'd ever done for a living. And simultaneously did income producing kinds of photography, but also, uh, I don't remember how I did it, but I got to be a still photographer on a bunch of films. A set photographer on about 10 or 12 very bad, mostly very bad, not even B movies, but more like C and D movies. But that's okay because uh, I was learning a lot and it's a great, it's a great way to learn about movie making because one of those things, after a very short amount of time, nobody notices you anymore. You know, right. You're a one-man department, and yeah, they know who you are, but you hear things that they would never let, uh, you know, even a, even a third electrician, they wouldn't have the director, let's say, and the actor, or the producer and the director would never have this conversation with anybody on the crew, and I'm sort of not on the crew, because I'm a one-man department. Anyway, learned a lot, mostly about how how things shouldn't be and how not to do things, but that's yeah. valuable, too. Well, because that's what I wondered, because you were on, like, the early Charles Band stuff, like exactly. Tourist Trap, and um, also, like, Harry Hurwitz movies, which well, one, I found kind anyway. of, Was it one of them? And I don't even remember what it was called. Well, is, he, is, he, is he of note is for some reason? Yeah, he has a weird uh, cult following, let's say, especially, uh, you know, Fairy Tales and Nocturna, the movies, that oh. and then also oh. The Projectionist. Both of which I worked on. Yeah, so uh, like... Nocturna was in New York, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, strange movies, but interesting movies nonetheless. But I think, um, I think you're being kind, but go ahead. <laughs> but how did uh, China Lake come about? Because that was the, the first thing. I watched that actually for the first time about a week ago. I found it's actually up on YouTube. Um, I know, very, very fucked up version of it, including including the no, music has been removed. But... I'm happy to say I'm working with these guys right now. It, it, a much improved and slightly restored version is going to be on the new Blu-ray. Oh, nice. Yeah, because it's missing like a bunch of – I looked at the credits. It almost seemed like Merle Haggard cues and stuff were missing from it because like basically any time it almost seemed like a pop song would come in, the, the music like completely drops out. Because whoever put it up on YouTube is afraid of getting sued. That's why, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Anyway, wants- yes, Trinley came about very – uh, very slowly, but very simply. I'm sorry you had to see it that way. Hopefully you can revisit it when this Blu-ray comes out because the picture has been restored. I did a lot of work on the soundtrack to fix it up, and it's, it's good. I'm very, still very proud of that movie. Uh, it came about because I was busy being a still photographer, and I thought I can only see two routes to becoming a director. One was, and it was you know, pretty common in those days, make a short film, get recognized, and then get lucky and have someone offer you a movie. Or start writing scripts, and of course in the fantasy land of trying to plan your own future, write scripts, write them so well that people buy them and make them, and then you do that two, three times, and the fourth one, or pick the number, you say, no, this one's not for sale unless I direct it. Sure. And that seemed like a decade-long plan, which I wasn't interested in. Plus, I had no idea how I would be as a writer, so I decided to make a short film uh, do you know the director, Michael Dinner? Do you know who that is? No, I don't. Uh, he's made some films, a lot of television, very good guy. And uh, I didn't go to AFI, but he was an AFI student. And 
he made a short film that I was quite impressed with. And he was trying to, he was going to use it as a calling card for a theoretical career. And I kept very close touch with him because I was so impressed with the film. I thought, if he doesn't get any work from this, then there's no point in my making a short because I don't think I can make anything better than this. And luckily he did. And that's made me, inspired me to spend every cent I had for two years making China Lake. And I told him that I owe my career to him. Had he not gotten the job, I might not have ever made that movie. And I don't know what I'd be doing. Probably still a photographer or something. Uh, so I wrote this. I was very anxious that it not that the short that I was going to make to make as a, as a hopefully career making calling card. I did not want it to be. Any sense of like a student film in any way, in other words, I, I wanted it to be a movie that people if it were a full-length feature, would pay happily to see it. So it was sure. designed designed from the very beginning to be like a 30-minute piece of what I would call a real movie. Um, so for that reason, a lot of it, a lot of it was... Sorry? Uh, it almost feels like a first act. Like we're introduced to this guy, and as you describe it that way, that it's a piece of a, a full movie because you're basically introduced to this uh, murderous uh, police officer, but... It kind of leaves you to where he, you know, he goes on vacation. He he does the things that say to relieve his stress, that's, or that's however. Exactly how how I've always described it. Uh, yeah, because it's got almost a a very Jim Thompson feel. That's well, it. it it has no protagonist. Yeah. Or the antagonist and the protagonist are the same person, or the yeah. same character. Which is, by the way, one of the things that people really hate that movie. That's what that I'm sure that that's what drives them nuts. There is no force of good, not even a force of good that'll fail. There just isn't one. You know, that just doesn't exist in his world. He will do what he wants. He will get away with it. End of story. Yeah. So I wrote that thing and then decided I decided I would shoot it, although I didn't have much experience as a cinematographer, but. It was going to be very expensive for me and cost me everything I had. Like I said, I dumped everything I made for, for years into it. Uh, and if that directing aspect of it didn't pan out, I wanted it for my DP reel. Okay. So that's the only reason I shot it. Okay. And how did you get Charles Napier in it? There's a really good story in that. It's short. He's one of the great 80s. I always call him one of the great 80s heels of all time. Like, ever, anytime you needed a bad guy, you called Charles Napier. He's, and sometimes sometimes good guy in some of those Jonathan Demme movies. Yeah. You know, but uh, he was, a, he was a, a stroke of great luck. But here's what happened. So I'm busy writing it, and I'm writing it, and writing it. And a friend of mine invites me. You're in Philadelphia? I'm in Austin right now. I'm oh, Austin. Do you know L.A. at all? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Well, there's a place called the New Art Theater on the west side. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. And they were having a Russ Meyer festival, of all things. And this okay. is so long enough ago that Russ Meyer was still alive and he was going to be there. And I didn't barely know who he was. Oh, I was, come to this thing. It'll be fun. And I went. And Russ Meyer gets up in front of the audience and introduces himself and talks a little bit about his career and says that one of his muses, because he was in so many of Russ's movies, is my old friend Charles Napier. Charles Stand up and let's give Chuck Napier a hand. And I turn around, three or four rows behind me is this guy. He stands up, and it was like a light bulb went off of my head. And I said, that's him. 
that's the guy I've been writing about. He, there's something about his physicality and his almost comically square jaw. Yeah. You know, he, he thought, this guy. So I finished writing it and called his agent saying, he's the guy I would really like to have in the movie. I really wrote it for him. Now, that's how this all started. Time went by. I didn't know how things worked in Hollywood. I was completely green. Um, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. I kept calling the agents. I, nothing was happening. Not even a rejection. No, he's not interested. Nothing like that. I had a, a good friend who's still a good friend from my own hometown who's now reasonably well-known producer, but then he was an AD. And I told him about this. He said, oh, you know, I did a movie with Charles Napier. I have an old home number, which might work, but you can never tell him where you got the number. You know, that's like the highest on the list of sacrileges for an AD to give away some actor's home phone number. But I called him, called him at home, Napier. I explained the situation. He said, what? I knew I couldn't trust that. I never even heard about this. My agent has never even contacted me about it. Send it to me. Fuck the agent. So I did. And he loved it. And I told him I'd written it for him. He loved it. He said, you have to come out or we have to talk about this. So make, make a long story short, I went out to his place and I think it was Tarzana or something. And we talked about it and he signed on to do it right then and there and fired his agent. Oh, wow. For not having shown it to him. Man. What about so, uh, Bill Sanderson? It came like, through Na Chuck Napier. I don't remember why or how, but they were friends. Okay. And yeah. so that was, that, was, that was an interesting bit of six degrees because of Bill Sanderson being in Blade Runner with Rutger. Yeah. That was, was well before Blade Runner, but still. Um, not well before Blade Runner, but certainly a little bit before Blade Runner. And because they also, uh, Charles Napier and Bill Sanderson, have the most memorable scene in it, too, with the entire diner. I guess we would call it fantasy sequence where he, good Lord, drags him across <laughs> everything from like a flat grill to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. So anyway, that's how we got Charles Napier. Um, I, uh other people, there are other various connections. But there's a whole bunch of strange stuff that happened through casting that I don't bother going through. But and didn't pay anybody. You know, nobody got paid. No crew member, no cast member. Sure. It was a great, a great, a great uh, bit of uh, trust on Chuck Napier's part to spend that time out in the desert for nothing. And he loved the movie. Dragged Jonathan Demme to see it at a screening, and he really loved it, which I was very happy about. Um, yeah. I would have. I would have lost my mind if Jonathan Demi watched anything that I made, just because that guy's like one of the great heroes of cinema. Oh yeah, he's done some great work, that's for sure. Sorry, uh, we lost him. We lost him way too early, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, can you talk to me about reading The Hitcher for the first time? Because <clears throat> by all accounts, Eric Red's script was unorthodox. Let's say. Very much so. I, I just kind of wanted to know because it also like it, it's almost become one of those weirdly legendary scripts to where you're like stuff was in it that wasn't in the movie. It was incredibly long. And I just wanted to hear like what was the first reaction that you had to reading it? Well, let me let me give you a tiny bit of backstory. I made Shauna Lake. It got very good reception. It got me a very powerful, terrific agent. There's a funny little story on that that I won't bore you with. But I was so green. Anyway, this very this very good agent took me on, 
and then at William Morris and started sending me scripts. And I kept saying, no, 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 wow, this is terrible. No, 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 no. And, I, and at a certain point, even I was thinking, holy shit, I wanted, a, I wanted this career since I was 10 years old. And now I'm being offered feature films to direct. And all I'm doing is saying, no, I got to stop doing that. <laughs> now, I, I do think that the scripts were terrible. And then sure. I read The Hitcher and there was something in it that was very uh, uh, exciting, very gratifying. There was a lot about it I didn't particularly care for, but it was very unusual. Um, both the writing style in the sense that, and there's a word for this in the, in the world of play and screenwriting or even just writing, and I don't know the word, but entire pages, several pages at a clip of dialogue between two characters in which only a word is said by each character. It was a sort of staccato. Was if it was music, you'd call it staccato, eh, 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 like that. And that alone was kind of eye-opening and pretty, pretty cool. And there, of course, is some of that still in the movie. Um, conceptually, um, I still wasn't sure because I was a green director. I'd only done China Lake. It's the only thing I literally, only thing I'd ever directed. And all the the action concerned me. Am okay. I gonna, am I going to know how to do that? Uh, all that sort of stuff. But I still remember my agent. This was another agent at William Morris at the time. He just made the assumption, this is probably psychologically astute on his part, made the assumption that I was going to say yes. And he said to me, I can't believe how much fun you're going to have making this movie. Yeah. And I hadn't said yes till he said that. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I just look at it that way and say yes? So I did. And then it was through the convolutions of getting it actually financed it was like it was almost a year later i have to look at the calendar but it's quite a while later which was to my great benefit because i had a year to let it float around and you know it wasn't like oh we have to go right away because so and so well, you know let's, we're starting in six weeks no we started in 50 weeks which was a luxury of course i never had again and because we didn't know when we were going to start they had to start figuring out who was going to make it now it it's funny that you say uh, that you know, you had an agent who came to you and said you're gonna have fun making this movie is because um, I have a buddy, uh, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who wrote a book about it for Arrow Films, and she goes through some production history stuff about how. Excuse, excuse me, one second. Is she the Australian? Yes. I have that little book. I haven't read it, but I have it. I should look oh, at terrific. it. Terrific. Yeah. yeah. She, she's a really good friend of mine. Oh, that's right. Uh, and she is one of the ones who's like incredibly knowledgeable about the movie, but uh, she outlines something in there that people were almost trying to talk you out of making the movie too. Oh, certainly. How, there, were, there, there were some people. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the infamous Jim Jacks was Jim one Jacks, of them. Yeah. Who was That's a friend of mine. I had met at Telluride when we screened China Lake at Telluride. He came up to me and introduced himself and, uh, no, he thought it was too, way too violent and wouldn't do me any good at all and blah, 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 blah. I don't remember exactly what he had to say. And uh, luckily I didn't listen to him. <laughs> yeah. But that's no. true. Jim, Jim didn't like it. I, don't, I think he liked the movie, but I don't think he liked the script. Yeah, because the, the script, again, this is all secondhand outlining from her book, but the, the script almost had get, garnered like a notorious reputation, it sounds like, for how violent it was. Yes. Um, but either way, we're here now. So um, 
when did Rutger Hauer become attached to the hitcher and how did that come about? Um, well, that's a good, you know, it's funny. I don't know that I really care for, clearly remember the origin of that. Okay. I do, I do know, and, I, and Rutger knew this, where he's still with us today. I would still be happy to say this in public. He knows this. Uh, it's true that I used to go to meetings with people who were contemplating financing it or whatever reason I might be meeting with somebody about the film. And of course, the question that really came up, who do you see as John Ryder? And I right. carried a picture of Terrence, a, a picture of a young Terrence Stamp. I, I assume you're a huge cinephile, cine, so the sort of the Terrence Stamp of um, Billy Budd, if you're in one of his, I think that might have been his very first movie. Yes. You know, yes. If you're not familiar with that movie, you should be, you should become familiar with it. It's an old black and white movie directed by, directed by and starring Peter Ustinov. It's from a Herne Melville novel. It's wonderful. Anyway, there was... As opposed to the character that Eric had written, which was just, he was just vile and, um, what can I say, without redeeming characteristics. In fact, it's funny because I'm cleaning up my office recently and I came across a bunch of old drafts of the script, including autographed by Rutger on the front page, I'm sure at rap and on and on. And I was surprised to see and you can imagine, I think, how, how, how this doesn't fit the movie because of Rutger. The character is often described just so like any writer. Eric didn't want to have to keep saying John Ryder, John Ryder, John Ryder. He started to refer to him as the psycho. Because he was. He was just a psycho. And, he, and, I, and I emphasize the word just. And one of the things we all wanted to do was to make this something a little more than just a guy here and a guy there, and they just go like this for 90 minutes. There's plenty of that in the movie, of course, but um, we wanted to humanize him. We wanted to make him not just a psycho, but somebody with something going on in his head that we have to learn to learn about and understand, even if it's only guessing. But there had to be enough raw material there that you wouldn't just say, you know, this is, of course, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not a machine. He's not a Terminator. He's he is a guy who something went screwy in his life, or he was born that way. One, well, a lot of questions unanswered, which, of course, is clearly part of the longevity of the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so I, so Terrence turns down. Okay. It's too, I'm, a, I'm afraid of what it'll do to me if I go to where I have to go to play this part, is what he said. And it was one of the real highlights of my life, because I think he's such a great actor. We were at some function or a party or something, and he said... That was one of the things I really regret having passed on because that was a great movie. So I hope he meant it because I took it like he did. So, yeah. Uh, and, of course, the idea of Rutger was fabulous. You know, there was no, there was no disputing this. It was a great idea. Oh, let's live, let, you know, who do we cast if we're on planet Earth? Because there's no way he's ever going to do this. He had just finished Blade Runner. Sure. But he did. Because he really liked China Lake. He wouldn't do it until he screened China Lake, and that's what did it. It was fantastic. Just a really good workout for me as a totally green director also. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to wonder, too, and ask you about is, as a kind of young novice director, how was it basically directing Rucker Hauer? Uh, because, I mean, were you familiar with 
his stuff that he'd done overseas with like Paul Verhoeven. And- Certainly. Yes, I was. Yeah. Yes, I was. Um, here's a little, another little anecdote. Uh, so Rutger says, yes, he gets cast. We're going to make the movie. We've got it through you know, HBO used to have a theatrical division. It was made through HBO films on and on and on. It was happening. Jennifer Jason Lee was with us, which is great for them because they had just done flesh and blood. Yeah. Open. Uh, so they knew each other, which was great. And Jennifer was having was her birthday or mother's birthday or something. It was a big party. And uh, Verhoeven was there because Rutger was going to be there and Jennifer's mother, whatever. And we're introduced. Paul, I'd never met him before. And he said, oh, I, sure, I recognize your name. Uh, aren't you directing Rutger's next movie? I said, in fact, I am. He said, and somebody told me this is your first film. I said, yes, it is. And he started to laugh. Like the two of those things together were worthy of a lot of laughter. And I said, oh, come on. This is my confidence probably isn't where it should be anyway. What's the joke? What, what, what's going to happen? And Paul said, oh, no, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. But you should know that Rutger will have a million ideas for every moment of every scene. And I said, I remember this. And I said to him. Well, that sounds good to me because I'm new at this. I may not have any ideas. So it would be great that he has all these ideas. And Paul said, no, <laughs> you don't understand. Rutger will be convinced that all million of those ideas are genius. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something to that. It really wasn't a huge problem, but there were things I didn't know how to deal with. Because the thing about Rutger is he is a crazy idea machine. I mean, he will, any situation, he'll have a, he will have a million ideas and some of them were brilliant and they're in the movie and some of them are what <laughs> no we can't do that but i was very frightened to say that i you know it became an exercise in the diplomacy of how do you say no 400 times a day without making him <laughs> upset <laughs> i mean one of the very first things he wanted to do i mean again he's not here to defend himself but uh, it doesn't matter uh he uh he want, he said, I, you know, I have an idea for that scene, for my introductory scene where I'm standing by the side of the road with my thumb out and see Thomas stops and picks me up. I said, what's the idea? He said, I want to have a big Mickey Mouse doll in my arms. What? That's what I, I, that's what I thought, but I, I thought, well, I don't know. Let me think about that. And then I would go, holy shit, well, how am I going to fix this? And then, of course, the answer came to me and I said, Roger, you know, we checked the trademark thing and we'll get sued, you know, till." 20 years will be in a lawsuit with Disney. You can't do that. Oh, I didn't think of that. Okay, fine. So that was the end of that. So there was a lot of that kind of, there was a lot of, that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, what, I, what about... But it, was great. it was great. We got along very well. We stayed friends. Every time we passed through LA, all these years later, we still were in touch. Um, I'm sorry we never did another film together because we certainly tried. Yeah. And it's... He's such a force of nature exactly too that it's like it's impossible to to uh, take your eyes off of him the entire time how did the let's say relationship between he and c thomas howell go because he's very young in the movie as well so here you are as a young director there's a young actor who's just coming off of you know coppola's the outsiders and stuff like coming all that stuff yeah yeah, how how did you work to basically, let's say, build their, I don't want to use bond, 
Although that that leads to another question I have later. Uh, but like, how did you manage that relationship, that ping ponging? Um, well, the risk of sounding glib, I was aware that Tommy was frightened of him. I'm right. talking about not the characters. I'm talking about that C. Thomas was frightened of Rutger and intimidated by him. And I thought to myself, well, great. I'm not going to try to fix that. <laughs> That's just what we need. And that, so I didn't. I, I saw no reason to have a talk with him about or even get them both together. That just didn't seem why undo something that would be so helpful. Sure. Maybe Tommy paid the price for that. I, but, you know, I only knew that because he told me. I never saw that in his, in, you know, in his. He kept it to himself, as far as I know. Okay. So, uh, and I and I think it faded away pretty quickly, especially because as we worked on various scenes, um, the one piece of direction that was critical, and which Rutger so relished and so did such beautiful things with. Uh, was to treat him, the, the, the uh, Jim Halsey character, treat him like your son. Treat him like, like you love him. And, and he did. And from, 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 the de- from then on, there was a whole thing between them that Rucker was busy doing, I think mostly in evidence. There's a moment where you see it, it's naked and clear. You cannot miss it. When they, in the cafe, the scene that ends with the two pennies on the eyes, and Rutger is holding his hand, but just his hand, under the table, threatening to shoot it. You know, Tommy pulls his gun out. It's all it's fake gunplay under the table. One of them really has a gun, and the other one doesn't. And when when Rutger makes the sound of it, he goes boom, and he and he hits his hand along the bottom side of the table, which causes Tommy to start firing this, as is then revealed, empty gun that he didn't know was empty. The way Rutger looks at him with this kind of you know, this kid's going to, you know, he's, he's so sweet. He really needs to be, he needs to grow up. He needs to learn how to handle himself. And that's, it, it was all very fatherly, which I thought was really, really worked. And then all those kinds of things. I think Tommy had a really good time, even though he might've been here and there intimidated. Okay. And that's what you keep using the term fatherly too, because over the years there have been so many interpretations of their relationship too, to where, you know, you could read it almost as a, in an odd way, a coming of age movie and about this boy becoming a man. Exactly. That's how I read it. Okay. I mean, I read it because, and I don't know that I have the exact plot of zoo story correct in my head, but I always thought of it as a kind of a genre movie, sort of zoo story in the form of a genre road movie which is to say that for reasons that we don't understand and don't want to understand, as far as I'm concerned, Rucker doesn't want to live anymore. He's sick of himself. He's sick of the world, whatever it may be. And he's looking for someone to do what he has now the courage to do himself, which is to kill himself. He wants to be killed. He wants it over. Okay. And all of his victims keep failing. And therefore, they, they end up dead because they can't stand up to him. They can't figure out a way to do it themselves. And what he sees in Tommy... When he throws him out of the car, he stands up, and I, I have to say, I think that wonderful shot in which he stands up, and we end up looking up at him, where he's sort of swaying. The look on his face was, I, it's like he's just caught the fish. I, I've got it. I've got him. This is this is this is going to work. I I can see that what this kid is made of, and I'm going to make sure that, it, and I'm going to help him. I'm going to help him do what I want him to do. And then that to me was what it was really all about. 
And in the meantime, sorry, I keep, I probably had too much coffee before getting on the on this call with you, but in the meantime, it's also Tommy Howells, the Tommy, the Jim Halsey characters, naivete, and he's right on the cusp, which is what, one of the reasons I liked him in the movie so much. He's such a sweet, he has such a sweetness about him, a kind of a little boy look to him. Even now, and I've seen him recently, he still is kind of boyish, even at however old he is. Um, that the normal period of a, of a young man, of, of a young boy's maturation into manhood takes place over, you pick the number, is it a decade, is it 10 years, whatever it is. In Tommy's case, that whole thing is squeezed into like four days or whatever this, whatever the, whatever the day count is of this movie. And that's, that was always my feeling about it. There's nothing more to it than that. Okay. And I'm glad that you brought up, I guess for lack of a better term, the hero shot that we get of John Ryder, which is one of the most kind of iconic moments in the movie, um, because I wanted to ask you about working with John Seal. Uh, oh. Sure. Is like obviously a legendary cinematographer, but like what the energy that he brought to your first, you know, feature movie. Absolutely. The the greatest stroke of luck I could ever have. Now, of course, he wasn't John Seal then. Right. He had done Witness, but Witness hadn't come out yet. And the reason and the reason he reason he shot the Hitcher is because Ed Feldman produced both the Witness and Hitcher. Okay. And Ed Feldman said, oh, you got to talk to this. I think you should use John Seal. And of course, I said, who's that? No one, no one in America had ever heard of him. And he said, we just shot this movie with Harrison Ford, and he did such a great job, and everybody loved him. And I said, well, sure, I'm happy to consider him. And he said, well, no, you shouldn't consider him. I think you should hire him. And I said, well, let's get a meeting. He said, well, he's in Sydney, Australia, and there's no time. And just get on the phone with the guy and make sure you're okay. So we did. We had a couple of phone conversations, and I took a flyer. At Ed's recommendation, I even got into the cutting room and looked at a couple of reels of Witness and seemed fine. And I really, it was just, he's like, what can I say? Great, great guy and helped me tremendously. And uh, was always in good humor, extremely inventive because coming up through all the Australian film uh, industry, there's not, you know, he doesn't overlight because he doesn't have the light. He never had the lights. You know, that's like that old story. Not I'm trying to noble myself by talking about. Um, um, Jesus, sorry, that name just flew right out of my head. Oh, Days of Heaven. All those great stories about Nestor Almandros, the Spanish cameraman who shot Days of Heaven, but with an all-American crew. And he kept every day they'd be shooting all these scenes and the all the big arcs, old-fashioned arc lights that were on the truck, he never used them, never took them out of the truck. And people were calling back to say, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. We haven't taken an arc out of the truck yet. And of course, the thing is, yes, all to the benefit of the movie. And John Seals, um, it's just his experience was great. I've learned tremendous amount of him from him, not only technically, but uh, attitude-wise. Okay. Great. There's nothing. And I, you know, I, I didn't consider myself a cameraman, certainly not of his caliber, but I certainly knew my way around cameras. And uh, I remember one day, very small thing, and it wasn't really, it's hard to, hard to retell this story without him sounding like he was angry. He wasn't, but he might have, but we, it doesn't matter what the shot was. I, maybe I will tell you, because you seem to know the movie so well. There's a move in which, in a little police hut, when 
right after Tommy has the dream and wakes up and, the, and his cell door is open. And he sort of wanders around in the police station with the German shepherd. And then all the cops start arriving and he makes a beeline for the, to get out of there because he doesn't want to. Anyway, there's a shot that has these cops pulling up. Uh, it's a tracking shot. And as the cops are entering the building, the way the shot was able to be lined up as they're entering the building, we continue to move and the door flies open and Tommy Howell comes out of the door and we pan with him as he runs up into the mountains. And there's a, there's a moment where you can sort of see into the building from outside. And John had put a big, pretty, pretty heavy light, a 5K light inside so that it wouldn't be a black hole when we see through the open door when Tommy comes out. And I thought it was overlit. And I said, and this is, uh, you have to know that on a Panaflex camera, which is what we use, the on-off switch is a little tiny toggle switch down at the bottom right of the body of the camera. So I said to John with great trepidation, because I have nothing, even then, and nothing but respect for him. And I said, John, far be it from me, but do you think we really need that 5K in there? And he looked at me and he said, the switch is on the right. And he sort of turned and walked off. <laughs> and it couldn't be interpreted as fuck you you want to shoot it yourself go ahead but it was okay and we did turn it off and he was perfectly happy with it but um yeah i don't know how i got into that what, what were we talking about john seal yeah awesome he is how awesome <laughs> is he? just great 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 man and a great cameraman can you can you talk about the car stunts a little bit and like him helping you shoot them and stuff too, because sure. that's one of the, I want to say defining elements of the movie, but it's, it's what makes the hitcher. Cause you could watch the hitcher and in, in another director and creative teams hands. It could almost be just a rather pedestrian slasher movie. You know, it's just, which is what Jim Jack saw in it, which is why he thought I shouldn't do it. And that, but the way you shoot it, it becomes, and uh, almost like horror action hybrid, especially in the end, the final reel of this movie is incredible. But like, I wanted to know, especially as a first time director, cause that's the thing I kept in the back of my head the whole time watching it this time is that it's like, this guy was shooting this, like, and he, he was, he was learning the entire time. And I just kind of wanted to know how it felt to shoot that sort of action and what into that and what went into that in terms of like planning and everything. Um, that's really a good question. And, you know, I guess it's the, whatever is it, the 35th anniversary or something. There's a fair amount of stuff going on. I'm getting a lot of calls and doing interviews and things like this. And no one's ever asked that, but um, I'll be as honest as I can. Um, yes, I was a first time director, but it certainly wasn't the first time photographer. Sure. And there's some aspects of the way I, to this day, it's the way I shoot. I like a certain, I don't know, for want of a better word, austere. I don't care. And I like the fact that this was, that this tendency that I have is an innate tendency just in me, appending it to an action movie. Therefore, reducing the fact that it isn't, quote, just an action movie. There are a lot of these sort of, not cold exactly, but uh, omniscient, kind of very carefully composed frames that are stills. Yes, there might be a bus that's moving through it, but it's essentially, let's stop everything and say, wait a minute, look at this. And what you really, in the context of this movie, and this was always a concept and it's there, and even people that don't know it 
get it on some level. Those mountains back there, they don't give a shit about what's going on between these two guys. It sort of, it, it's just a cheap way to sort of elevate it into something other than just shoot the action and who cares about the mountains and the, and the, and the, and the sound of the wind across the road, all that stuff. But it does, it does matter. Um, so and no one stopped me. No one said, "Oh, we don't have time for that." Stop, you know, stop it. No, nobody, nobody ever said that, even through the cut. But the actual mechanics of shooting some of the complicated action, yes, a lot of planning went into it. Uh, and John did most of the camera placing. He had something that I thought was great that he used in all through his Australian films that I thought I'm going to use that again, and I've used it many times. Some of those shots in various scenes that involved car play. We would dig a hole, and uh, you know, in those days, uh, there was a thing called an IMO, which was really a World War II Bell and Howell, took a, only a hundred foot load, small camera, very, very built like a tank, because they were built for war, war cameramen, uh, essentially unused. Now it's, it was the it was the early you know the early 80s version of a, of a you know, GoPro, except it wasn't made out of plastic. <laughs> but John liked the idea of. And, and they were dispen- they were just not disposable exactly, but they also had crash boxes, which was like a you know half inch thick metal box. You could not hurt what was in this box, and just an opening for the lens. So you could you could run it over, you could throw it off a cliff, and the camera would be fine. Uh, but John had even a better idea, and his idea was we dig a hole big enough for an Arri 2C, which is another famous model camera that was very noisy it couldn't be you it predated talkies even i think uh, maybe not but it was it was a noisy camera so not to be used for sync sound uh, but it had pin registration it was a real camera uh, and not disposable and there was no such thing as a crash box for it I mean, there was expensive cameras every film crew carried them for certain kinds of shooting which the, the coffee grinder sound of it didn't matter so we dig a hole put the camera on its back, looking up at the hole. At the top, I don't know if you can, there's my frame. At the top of the hole was a, was a mirror. So what the camera saw was that. So and what that was, was a road where the cars were gonna drive. And instead of the normal uh, coaching that you would give to the stunt drivers, whatever you do, don't hit the camera. You could say to them, whatever you do, you see that mirror, hit that mirror. Make sure you drive right into that mirror. So we would get these shots in which the car looked like, if this is the camera, if it was a real shot, the car would slam right into the camera. But all it broke was a $40 mirror. We had those planted all over the place. It all, I'd never heard of that before. I'd never seen anyone do it before or since. Wow. Simple idea. And, and no cameras were hurt. Actually, another camera was hurt. But, not from not from the whole the whole idea it worked great. Did you tell the helicopter to fly into the mirror? Were you like fly in? <laughs> no, we're talking about road based. I know. So it was a challenge, and I didn't like it. And to this day, I don't really much like action. I don't I don't like it. Um, I think too much like a photographer. I think I've always thought, and I I, I find it not fun to set up a shot that I know will be good in the action sequence, but I like to set up shots that you could put a frame around and hang on a wall, which is, you know, tons of action. There's a lot of cuts that you would never do that with. Um, so I don't find it very fun. Um, but the challenge is, is interesting, but I, 
certainly in my, some of my darkest days in terms of my mood on shooting the Hitcher were the action stuff because I really didn't have any confidence. I'd never done it before. And I, you know, even that question of do we have it, I really didn't know. Right. I do like that you bring up the, let's say, austerity of some of your films because, um, you know, you can see the composition if you go from China Lake to The Hitcher and then uh, to Highwaymen, too, is that it's all there. There's a, As you kind of put it, there's a stillness. Um, but before I asked you about Highwaymen, I did I, – I would be totally remiss if I didn't bring this movie up. But I just watched Nowhere to Run yesterday uh, in prep for this, too. And the thing that struck me about that film – is that you essentially, you know, when the Hitcher came out, a lot of people credited, and especially I, later with criticism that people have written about the movie, have credited Red Script as being this Western-influenced thing and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, I get it, because he wrote that, and then he wrote Near Dark right after, and, like, it tracks. Yes. However, but when you watch your movies from the short on – they are clearly, or maybe not clearly, because I don't want to speak for you, but they look like Westerns. Like, they have that very painterly composition at times. And, like, watching Nowhere to Run yesterday, I had, and maybe it's a stupid thought, but I was like, oh, this is basically Shane, but with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, like, you're yeah. making almost, almost like a Bud Boddicker movie for the 90s. Oh, sure. That's not a... Uh... That's not a stupid thought. That's we, we were all so completely aware of that. How could you not be? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not I'm not just trying to discredit what you said, but sure, that is a Western. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Can you talk about working with Jean-Claude a little bit? Because you caught him right at a, a very odd moment in his career because you have that and you have uh, one of the other movies that we cover for our first season of the podcast, Hard Target coming out in the same year. Right, and I think that's what he went to do right afterwards, I think, or right before. That was okay. John Woo, it was a John Woo movie, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. I don't remember if it was before us or after, but it was right then, I remember that, yeah. But I wanted to talk to you about basically uh, directing him and how that was like, because some of the stories, especially about his kind of early 90s stuff, is that he was possibly a bit of a diva. I, I, I just want to make sure that you understand. Uh, yeah. This is totally honest. Yeah. It's not Hollywood, whatever. I don't know if it was his mood. I don't know if it was how he and I related. None of that. I've heard stories, too, and mostly following. I've heard horror stories and all kinds of stuff. He was perfectly sweet, great. I mean, I don't think he'd mind me saying he's not the world's greatest actor. I don't think that's anyone's surprise, but he's a very interesting guy. I really liked him. I really liked working with him. Uh, and there was none of that. It was a pleasure from beginning to end. Awesome. Not the whole movie, for sure, but working with him, yes. There were lots, lots of unpleasant issues, uh, mostly political, during the making of that movie and, and, and in post-production. Um, I'll just paraphrase. I'll just circumvented just by but saying um, I was hired Jean-Claude really loved what did he love he loved some movie of mine and he insisted that I direct this movie and that was great yeah and 
and um, um, he was anxious to exp expand his uh, possibilities for the kinds of things he could be in. So this was going to be Jean-Claude as an actor without all that other stuff. And that's what it feels like. Except in part because Columbia lost their nerve and, yeah. then, and caused certain things to be shot and changed that were completely antithetical to what we were trying to do. Yeah. And Which is why, by the way, not to get into all kinds of other stuff, but it's ancient enough history, I don't think it makes any difference, why the, you know, the, 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 the directorial proprietary a so-and-so film, you know, which I know a lot of writers have a problem with. That's fine. Like, we can have that argument. But that movie is not does not have that because I wouldn't take it. Okay. And they freaked out about that, too. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because, I mean, you were working again with another, uh, let's say, prolific screenwriter with Joe Esterhaas there. Was... We, didn't, we didn't work together for very long, I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> We had a meeting. We had a multi-day meeting up at his place in the north. I mean, in, in somewhere after Oakland or something, Berkeley. And then he wrote a draft, which I loathed, and I made a whole bunch of notes. And then he got all upset, and that was the end of it. So I never saw him again. Okay. Well, we'll move on to uh, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, Highwaymen. Yes. How, how did Highwaymen come about? Because to me, and again, watching these movies in order. Um, it very much feels like the spiritual sequel to The Hitcher. Um, and I just kind of wanted, because you're almost 20 years removed from it, from The Hitcher by the time you, you make this movie. It's like 15. Probably, yeah, Highwaymen was, I don't even know what year, 04 maybe, somewhere in there? Yeah. Oh, two in there somewhere. So. Yeah. Why come like you just brought up that you're you're not a huge fan of action and everything, but I guess why come back because that movie almost has more action than The Hitcher, or at least equal amount. Well, yeah, because it was in part about a car. Right. <laughs> Didn't just have, happen to have people driving them. It actually, you know, was Calm Fiore's uh, persona was the car itself. Yeah. I, it came about because we, the, the writers of that and my manager were the same. Sorry, the writers of that and their manager and my manager were the same person. Okay. So he thought, oh, this is a kind of pretty good fit. And I can't recall um, any particular gyration. I went through a lot of work on the script. Um, And it was probably the world's fastest, certainly in my my career, the world's fastest green movie. Once we um, we do work on the script just ourselves with the manager and the writers and me and blah blah blah, and then we had a meeting at New Line, at New Line Cinema, um, to discuss it all. We didn't even expect anything except let's see if they're interested and blah blah blah. The meeting was maybe 50 minutes long and a lot of questions and this and that. And then Bob, God, I can't remember, Bob Shea, right. whose, company it, Bob, whose company it was, ended the meeting by saying, all right, let's do it. And we, we didn't make it obvious, but we in fact looked at each other. Did he just say what we think he said? <laughs> Walked in the door and 50 minutes later, we had a greenlit movie at New Line at, at, a, at a real budget. It was yeah. kind, of, kind of a miracle. And <laughs> And again, I don't know that Bob, Bob Shea would mind. I still remember some little detail of that meeting that I still is 
to this day unexplained and weird. Everybody was walking out. Bob held, stayed back a little bit, put his arm around me, and he said, I just have one question. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, what's this going to be? He said, are you Canadian? And I thought, because he's going to do some Canadian finance thing and they need a Canadian director to make it all work, it wasn't that. He said, are you Canadian? I said, no. He said, good. And that was it. What? <laughs> like I say to this day, it's just a little detail, and I don't know what it meant why he asked me or why his reaction was, was was pleased but I was not Canadian I don't know so why return to the road why return to the horrors of the road because that movie almost makes it more explicit in terms of again yes how a car almost becomes the extension of Colm Fiore's uh, body almost but it also is talking about like one of the the scene that I find most interesting in that film is the the support group scene. Is that there's the moment where the leader of the support group he rattles off all these statistics, you know, and basically saying I think it's something like fifty thousand. He ends with fifty thousand yeah. people yeah. die every year in a car wreck. I like that scene too. For day one of shooting, by the way, I remember. Okay, that. and he, but it almost feels to be sort of like the thesis of the movie in a way, in that. It's almost like you could be a statistic or you these these things that happen to you, like these these accidents or these these incidents, these moments of violence change you forever. And I just wanted to know what brought you back to that sort of material, because it struck me to where I'm like, well, here here's a guy who's literally made a short film about a guy who essentially uses the road to kill people, the hitcher about this coming of age movie where this guy essentially meets, meets death on the road. And then now here is a movie about the transformative powers of like these accidents and horrible things that can happen on the road. So I was like, I need to ask him why keep coming back to this? It's a good question. I'm really sorry to have to say, I don't really have an answer. I don't know that I, I don't know that my level of self-understanding is sufficient to have something sensible or intelligent to say. When you put it that way, it makes me think, God, I never even noticed it. I never even thought of it that way. Okay. It was just a weird thing. I yeah, actually, sure, though. You, you're onto something for sure. Um, but, again, I guess a, a more basic question. Are you a car guy? Because no, they're, not no really. you're not. Because no. there you have a supercharged Barracuda and then an Eldorado essentially dueling against each other. You don't even own a car, to tell you the truth. Oh, wow. See, you're just a you're a walking uh, contradiction. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> but uh, the, the other thing that kind of unites the movies, particularly The Hitcher and Highwaymen, is uh, Mark uh, Isham. Uh, Isham, yeah. Isham. I, saying his uh, last name wrong. I'm always worried about that. Isham. It's Isham. Uh, can you talk about collaborating with him? Sure. Uh, because he brings out a, an almost... Uh, let's say spiritual or ethereal level to these movies that I think are awesome. Exactly. That's, that's why. I, yeah. Well, in the making of, uh, as we're getting the hitcher together, music is a huge thing to me in my life, even aside from movies. Um, this, this doesn't matter. Yes. Um, uh, um, well, how can I put this? And I'm not even sure which came first. I think, 
I remember driving down La Brea when the Hitcher was, I don't think we were in prep yet, but it was clear we were going to make it. It was, it was happening. Okay. And I heard something on the radio and I, and I thought, this is, this is so great for this movie that I have in my head. Pulled over to the side of the road so I could make sure I got what it was. And it was somebody I'd never heard of. And it's, it wasn't Mark. It's a guitar player from Minneapolis, a sort of an indie guy, and not well known, but very special, named Steve Tibbetts. Okay. He, he has a bunch of ECM recordings, if you know that label. It's, it's um, doesn't matter. Great. And I thought, this is the guy. And I called him and I got in touch with him and I said, you know, I'm from LA and I'm about to make this movie. Would you ever consider doing a film score? And he said, wow, that sounds really interesting. Blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about it and send him the script. And he was all in. And I couldn't get him past the various producer financers because he'd never done it. They wouldn't hear of it. So I was all disappointed. And then I saw a movie called Mrs. Sofal with Mel Gibson and Diane Keaton. You know that film? Yes. Story of a takes place, I think, in the early 1900s, even the 1800s. Yeah, so you know the story. The warden's wife falls in love with one of the prisoners and helps him escape. Tragic, yeah. tragic love story. Mark did the score, and I flipped out again. And I thought, okay, this is the guy then. And, and, and he was the guy, and he wanted to do it, and we met, and everybody was happy with it. And so that was our first collaboration, was The Hitcher, first of quite a few. He's a very, you know... I remember I was asked to speak at some award he was getting. I forgot what it was. It wasn't it wasn't like a, an Emmy or Oscar or something like that. It was some kind of a music. It doesn't matter. Speaking to a bunch of composers and music people. And I said, to me, the greatest thing about Mark is not only that his work is great, but that anybody who has any awareness of music, when you hear a, a score by Mark, you know it's him in two measures or five measures. There's no cookie-cutterness about it. He has a unique, I don't even know what it is he does, but you, you just know it's him. And the uh, same is true of Tom Newman, and the same is true of all the great film composers, and you know, Morricone, you know it's them, because it's, it's great in a very particular way. And I think that's true of Mark, and uh, I, we're, we've remained friends. Unfortunately, I haven't done a movie that I could afford him on in quite a while, but we're still in touch, maybe someday. I have a couple of things in the works that if I like, if I can get them going, I would certainly call him. Well, I I'm hope so. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I love him and I love his work. And um, and the yeah, and the movie uh, the, the Hitcher was temp dubbed with tons and tons of uh, Mrs. Sofal and um, Never Cry Wolf and a lot of his early scores. I think that's all he had done at that time, if I'm not mistaken. Hitcher might have been like his third movie. Yeah, it's real early. Real early, yeah. Uh, all right, well, he's, I got, a hell of a, he's a hell of a trumpet player too. Did really? Oh yeah, that's his that's his instrument. Wow. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to tell you, this has been awesome. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me, and uh, I can't wait to see. The movie restored, uh, hopefully soon. Well, that's China Lake. I'm not sure what condition the hitcher's going to be in. Right. The restoration work was unfortunately done. Uh, they don't even have necessarily the elements they want yet to do the, the hitcher stuff, but they're looking around. and It will happen one way or another. Well, the one, the transfer that's on the oh. German Blu-ray, you don't so, like it? I haven't seen it. Is it okay? It looks really good. 
Really? Like really good. Well, I mean, I'm also, I have to admit, I'm used to, yeah. like, I've kept my old HBO Films DVD for years. So, like, seeing it cleaned up at all was oh, a that was That was another early lesson in my, my, my directorial career. I woke up one morning and said to myself, hmm, I should probably get myself involved in the making of the, uh, the video release. And I called my agent and he said, oh, yeah, sure. So he called back like 20 minutes later and said, that already happened like five months ago. I missed the whole thing. I had nothing to do with it. And when I saw it, I was horrified. It's yeah. so terrible. But anyway, hopefully that's improved. Yeah, we'll have to see because hopefully it's coming soon. But again, thank you so much for taking the time out. This has I, been thank great. You. Thank you. Uh, you You've made one of the movies that's literally stuck with me my entire life. So right. <laughs> above and beyond all things, thank you for that.